Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, thousands of local restaurants available in under 30 minutes. Download the app today. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips. I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. I recently read a quote by US Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren that I thought was very pertinent to the times we're living in. This is the quote. What I've learned is that real change is very, very hard. But I've also learned that change is possible if you fight for it. Cast your mind back to not so long ago when smoking was first banned from aeroplanes, from pubs and restaurants and clubs. Smokers were appalled. It was deemed a violation of rights. No one will fly again. No one will want to go out anymore, they cried. It'll kill our social life. Well, of course it didn't. And furthermore, when we look back on that now... It's kind of hard to believe that we were ever permitted to smoke in confined spaces at all. Driving without a seatbelt, women not having the right to vote, women not even able to open a bank account without their husband's permission. We are aghast at these practices now, but at the time, they were considered the norm and they were generally just accepted. But thankfully, not by everyone. There were always the few who knew we had to fight for the greater good. The visionaries, the protagonists, the champions for change, who more often than not dragged the masses kicking and screaming into new eras that were safer, that were healthier, and thankfully, eras that were fairer. My guest today knew from a very early age that she wanted to be an advocate for change, that she was destined for a career that would highlight injustice and convince us to be better. In her role as the AFL's General Manager for Inclusion and Social Policy, she is rewriting the rules to help dismantle all forms of discrimination. Tanya Hosh, welcome to Drive. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What have you taken from this whole COVID period? Well, I'm someone who typically would travel every week around the country, largely from Adelaide to Melbourne, but also anywhere, Perth, Darwin, Tasmania could be anywhere and as a result would generally find it really hard to fit in regular exercise. My exercise of choice is just walking. I love to walk and where I live in Adelaide it's quite hilly so I deliberately walk up some challenging hills to get some cardio because I know I'm never going to end up running anywhere and so being able to get back into a regular pattern of walking has helped me enormously. I have 
being diagnosed with depression for quite a long time now. And I found many years ago that regular exercise and walking in particular was a really important part of me staying well. So being able to walk most days has been wonderful as well as just being home with my family more and feeling like I've actually established in some ways a bit more balance in my life, which is a really great surprise, I suppose, from this really challenging time. Well, it will have to be a very early morning walk because you have a very big job. And I want to talk to you about that. You're the AFL's inaugural General Manager of Inclusion and Social Policy. When you were appointed four years ago, not only was the role new, you were the first Indigenous person and just the second woman in AFL executive ranks. How did it feel walking into that job? I was pretty nervous because it was just such a different world working in sport. I mean, I grew up in Adelaide watching Aussie Rules footy, so I was familiar with the game and I was a fan of the game. I watched the game, but I had no idea what I was walking into. I think I was really naive as to the the size of the game and the complexity of the machinery that makes the game run and just how large of a machine it is. So I was definitely overwhelmed, but I was excited at being able to work from a platform as large as Aussie rules football. The AFL has an enormous footprint across the country, lots of eyes and ears on the game. So the opportunity to do the work I'm passionate about from this kind of platform, I was overwhelmed and was worried about failure, but I also knew that there was a lot of room to grow. And I guess going into a role that hadn't existed before, I could build it the way I saw fit. So I was in a good place, but yeah, I was definitely nervous and unsure of a lot of things going in. Well, I believe 18 months in, you considered walking. Why was that? Oh, because it was just such a hard transition. I'd worked in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs primarily for 20 plus years. I think I felt isolated and, you know, I missed that kind of shared understanding of working with a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That was a real challenge for me. You know, I remember a lot of my peers when I started saying it takes about 18 months to learn this business and to to start to feel that you know where you're headed and what you need to do. And I think that was really accurate. And, you know, so it was a really steep learning curve to move from what I knew to working at a very senior level in the industry, not knowing very much at all. I think I was exhausted at that point and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. And then, of course, there are always those negative voices out there critiquing whether you're doing well or not and those sorts of things. And at that point, that had all started to get the better of me. But fortunately, I turned the corner. You know, it's where issues of persistence and stubbornness can be a great ally. And I would say that I still have moments where I feel like I'm not sure that I'm delivering what I hope to deliver in the role. But uh, I certainly feel a lot more confident in it now, uh, four years later. Where were those negative voices coming from? Did some within the AFL have a problem with you not just creating and holding that new role, but potentially also for being a woman? Yeah, I think there probably were. Um, There were conversations I had where people were 
open with me about doubting my capacity to make a difference because I wasn't from football. You know, also being a woman, being Indigenous and being opinionated, that sort of certain mix of things that, you know, perhaps made me different to some other people. And the other thing is so many people that work in football love it so much and have been in the business for a very long time. So there's very long-held established relationships right across the system because it's one of those industries that once you get in, people do become extremely committed to it and enjoy it so much. And so building your own relationships and your own network and building that rapport across a really broad network when you've got 18 clubs to build relationships with, as well as, you know, broadcast partners and corporate partners and, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And then, of course, you know, my role is broad. So I'm also looking at issues around gender equality, issues of equality for LGBTQI communities, um, multicultural communities, looking at issues of racism, sexism. It's a lot of different groups to engage with to be able to be informed enough to make the right strategic calls and direction in the role. So I'm not surprised that people were critical, but what I do know now is that the time I took early on to understand as much as I could is paying off now. Roles like yours are thankfully being created across a growing number of industries and businesses. How do we ensure that they're not tokenistic? and that they instead bring about real change and progressive outcomes? Yeah, it's a great question, Georgie, because that is often where it can land. I got a lot of unsolicited advice when I started in the role from all sorts of people about, you know, you've got to have a deliverable in six months and you've got to be able to do this, this and this. And the kind of role I have, my success is only possible if other people across the whole sector listen to my recommendations who are prepared to follow my leadership because I don't have an operational role. It's all the other parts of the sector that do the doing. I'm not the doer. And so... So you've got to bring them along with you. Yeah, because they're the ones that actually take the action and ask the questions and they're the ones I have to work with. I've got to understand value and respect their role if I want them to understand value and respect mine. And so that's given me all sorts of opportunities to learn things that I might not have learned otherwise. So, for example, last year I approached uh, Richmond Football Club and Damien Hardwick, the head coach there, and said one of the things I need to do is start thinking about how to increase and improve the pathways of women and also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people from diverse backgrounds into coaching at the elite level. I don't know anything about coaching, so can I come and spend some time with you and your team? And he allowed me to spend an entire week with his coaching team in that inner sanctum allowed me enormous access to how it works because I certainly know a lot about being different and trying to make your way in a different world, but I don't know anything about the coaching environment. So that gave me invaluable insight into what it might take for someone of a different background to be successful at that side of things. So doing things like that really move you out of being a piece of symbolism 
to being able to build the rapport and understanding of what it's going to take to deliver change at that level. And, I mean, that's probably where in a sporting code tokenism will burn out very, very quickly because there is so much activity in sport and endless opportunities for action. So tokenism is not a luxury that we can afford and certainly not an expense that, you know, I don't feel that Gil McLaughlin recruited me to just look different around the table. And my voice and my my perspective, you know, that's come out of my lived experience is something that I always put forward. And sometimes I do that tentatively and worry about whether it's going to land, whether what I'm saying is going to be understood. But obviously my ability to be understood and to be responded to has come out of building those relationships. And in that way, I don't think sport's any different to any other industry. You talk about there being these wonderful opportunities right before us for change. And to focus on coaching as an example, it's occurred to me for for a long time now that we see so many gifted Indigenous players and yet we don't see them in the ranks of coaching and in those roles of leadership within the club. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And is that the next frontier that you really want to attack, for want of a better word? Yeah, look, coaching is one of those areas that's definitely a focus for us and building those pathways. And and you're absolutely right. It doesn't make sense that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, 3% of the national demographic, typically in the men's game, 10 to 11% of the elite players, and then woeful levels at every other place in the game. We definitely need to see more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people of colour, more women in our sports broadcasting, for example, Mm. those media roles, journalism roles in terms of those diverse voices talking about our game, presenting in our game are absolutely critical. You know, that old adage, you can't be what you can't see, is really, really important. So that's a major focus area for us. You know, seeing our first Indigenous CEO of a club When I started out of the 18 clubs, there was only one Aboriginal board member across 18 clubs. Now there's five, which is great, and we just need to see that continue. Having diversity in decision-making roles is absolutely critical because I think that's where you see a, a greater impact. Looking at all of those different elements across the game in terms of representation is really important. The pathways in terms of talent really are looking after themselves and we can't ever relax around that. We're going to have to keep putting in the work to make those opportunities available more equally because there'd be a lot of Aboriginal talent we miss out of as a result of some of the challenges in communities moving to the elite level of the game. But equally, it's a large industry with a lot of different areas where you can participate and to grow that is definitely a big focus area. Yeah, so we're seeing very encouraging signs, but we've got a long way to go. I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the suggestion that the term inclusion, while well-meaning, is actually insufficient? If you're included, you're merely tolerated. And in fact, we need to go a step further and adopt the concept of belonging. By belonging, those who've been marginalised can get a, I guess, a real sense that a workplace or an environment has been designed and intended for them. 
It's a powerful concept and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it. I heard someone speaking about it recently and I'm, I'm keen to hear what you think. That's an interesting perspective. I mean, certainly I had some say over what my title was and I chose inclusion over diversity because I think inclusion is a, is a stronger word. And from a diversity perspective, I often hear that applied to the inclusion of women. And there's nothing diverse about being a woman. We're half the world. Um, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. So there's diversity amongst us as women, but it's the inclusion. I guess I say that inclusion is where you start and belonging is what you want to see at the end. But I don't think you can get to belonging overnight. I think there is an archway that's got to be travelled. Belonging is important to all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. I think it's a innate trait and need that we all have in our hierarchy of needs to belong. It's critically important. I would like to be able to say that in time to come, maybe a role like mine might be a belonging leader or... um, the general manager of belonging. <laughs> general manager of belonging. It's a lovely term, but I don't feel that that is an expectation that we can have immediately. What we need to do is have more of that diversity amongst us first, I think, to really understand what belonging feels like and how you would measure people's sense of belonging in that context. But I do think it's a really interesting concept because I think belonging is a big part of the reason that when we have crowds allowed to come to the football, why our crowds are growing year on year, because people do have a sense of belonging when they come to the football. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Tanya Hosh. Your story is a fascinating one. You were born to a white mother of Welsh origin. Your birth father, Torres Strait Islander man. You were adopted at three weeks and your adoptive mother's white. Your father is Aboriginal. How has this shaped you personally? Oh, look, massively. I mean, I think identity is such a critical issue for people of colour and, you know, for Indigenous peoples generally. So working out my identity in that lovely mix of cultural influence in my life um, has at times been a real struggle trying to find my place and understand what it all means. Um, My journey to finding my natural family hasn't uh, been easy and nor is it complete. Um, So that does create, I think, emotional vulnerabilities for me. But I was just so fortunate to grow up in a family 
that loved me and um, who I loved. And, you know, I think that is the most important basis for a child. And, you know, I guess having an Aboriginal father helped with that sort of cultural context and understanding. So that wasn't entirely lost to me. So it's um, a mixed bag, really. But overall, I feel extremely lucky to have grown up the way I have. And how then has that impacted on you professionally? Well, I think it's uh, been a major driver behind wanting to um, help improve the life experiences of people of Indigenous backgrounds, having a strong sense and a keen sense of justice and trying to reconcile my own experience as a woman of colour in a world that can be challenged by both of those things and understanding that intersectionality and how that impacts your life experience and how it colours your worldview. It has driven me down the path that I'm on now, I suppose, and it means that I'm doing things I'm passionate about. So do you think, therefore, you were always destined to be an advocate, to be a fighter for those on the fringes who are without a voice? Or do you feel that that activism crept up on you? I feel like it crept up on me and I distinctly remember being 18 years old, walking down the street somewhere, I think towards a bus stop or something. I just had a experience, a frustrating experience, having a conversation with someone that got a bit heated about racial justice and just thinking to myself, it's more important to do what's right than it is to be popular. And I feel like I've probably been making myself unpopular ever since. And Maybe from that point on, I felt like this is where I need to be. This is the thing that I need to be focused on. This is where I need to make a difference. I want to talk to you about the reaction to the two documentaries that aired last year, The Final Quarter and The Australian Dream. They, of course, exposed the the shameful treatment of Adam Goods by both the public and the AFL. What was your immediate reaction when you watched those documentaries? Oh, well, I remember seeing the final quarter first and, you know, I was in tears by the end of it. I was uh, watching it alongside Goodsy's best mate, Michael O'Loughlin, so that was special and fortunate for me, I think. Um, Look, I was overwhelmed, I guess, and just to see these films put together in the way that they were, this amazing catalogue of what had occurred, the different opinions that had been given at the time, a snapshot of a nation in a time of staring at something and really trying to explain it away as not being about race. You know, it was painful to watch it. I felt that the many errors of that time and missed opportunities were very, very clear. I must have watched the films countless times by the end of last year through a whole range of different fora that I was involved in. And every time I watched them, I saw something different. The lost opportunity, the cost of this to Adam, to Adam's family, to Adam's community, to his friends, and I count myself as one of those people, the lost opportunity to the country to take that moment and harness it. The lack of political leadership through that was loud as well. And, 
you know, I just felt so sure that I had to try and help the whole sector and also provide some leadership to the nation through the AFL to try and do everything we can to make sure that that could never happen to another person again who plays our game or hopefully plays any game or plays any role in our, in our society. Why was the AFL so reluctant to admit that it had handled the situation badly, do you think? Well, I wasn't there at the time, so I don't know what happened. But I do think that, you know, the AFL did come to realise that they've handled it wrong and have been clear about that since. I suspect that the AFL wasn't really any different to the country in terms of handling these things um, and got stuck in a conversation about whether it was racism or not. And what was encouraging about the conversations that we had last year was that wasn't what the conversation was about anymore. It wasn't a debate about whether race had played a part. And there will always be people who maintain it didn't. But I think on the whole, I certainly had countless conversations with people who had held that view before seeing the films and now realise that they were wrong. And the fact that we're now able to discuss it as an issue of racism in itself means that we've got a much better chance of dealing with it going forward. So, yeah, I, I think people are really uncomfortable talking about racism, but I think the more we talk about it, the better our chances of dealing with it properly. And, you know, I would just hate to see anybody ever have to suffer through what Adam carried for all of that time. And when we showed uh, the final quarter to all the Indigenous players in the league in a summit we had with them in Adelaide at the beginning of last year, ahead of the film's public release, the Indigenous playing cohort were very similar in saying, I did not realise how long he endured that for and we didn't do enough to support him either. So to the extent that we all need to take some responsibility for not stepping up. I think the work that we're doing now would really prevent that from happening again. And I think we're seeing that in relation to the responses right across the code and even in the media in relation to people like Eddie Betts and Liam Ryan and uh, any other player that's experiencing this racial vilification, particularly in social media. I've had the great privilege of spending some time with Adam Goods and he would have to be one of the most impressive and outstanding positive men I've ever come across. Have you seen him lately and how's he faring? I, I believe he's absolutely adoring being a father. Yeah, look, I haven't seen him for a while, but I did bump into him early this year running through an airport and he was with um, his wife and his daughter and it was my first time to meet Adelaide. So I was very, very excited and we had a lovely exchange in the middle of the airport and uh, she gave me a beautiful big smile and, you know, I mean, Adam is all of the things that you said, a remarkable person with a, you know, really generous heart. I can only just continue to wish him well. But yeah, I still feel terrible about what he went through. And I think that he's taking the right course for himself to move on from that time. But I'm sure the scars will have to always be with him like they are for any person who experiences racism. Mm. I'm sure you gave the name Adelaide your stamp of approval as well. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe your leadership style? <laughs> Um, direct. <laughs> I get that feedback. Very direct. 
I'm a collectivist at heart, so I like to do things with groups of people. I like to build coalitions of people to work together. I like to consult and engage with people right through a process. I definitely think better out loud. So that's probably one of the things that's been challenging about COVID because I think technology is a great asset to us, but it's not the same as being in a room with people. So, yeah, I like to think that I'm pretty much an open book. What you see is what you get. I'm told that I'm challenging. I'm told that I'm intimidating, which often bothers me because I feel like I'm quite a warm person and I I intellectually have a disconnect with that sense, but I also understand that I do push boundaries and I do challenge people, but that is my role. And if I'm not prepared to do that, then I shouldn't be taking up that seat at the table. Sometimes that can feel really lonely and um, that's where your allies, your friends, your family, your peers become very, very important to help sustain you in sometimes being the one that speaks up. I feel like if I had a dollar for every time I left a meeting and someone comes up to me and says, I'm really glad you said that, you know, my response to that these days is, why didn't you say it? I would have loved it if you had said it. But isn't it interesting that you describe your style of leadership as being direct and assertive, and yet some are critical about that, And yet we would very rarely hear a man being criticised for being direct and assertive and authoritative. Mm. When is that going to change? Because I'm I'm really tired of that discussion. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame you. I'm tired of it too. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. I think men are given latitude around all sorts of behaviours that women are not. And I'm not sure when that will change. But I certainly do feel that there is a growing impatience amongst many, many women around those double standards. And I think the more we as women amplify each other and back each other in, in relation to those things, the less of an issue it will become over time. But I feel like it's it's like talking about racism, like none of these things just get solved or changed overnight. And continuing to call them out can be really exhausting and that's why we've got to share the work. And I think as women building coalitions, even informally, where you agree that you're going to back each other in, particularly ahead of perhaps some challenging conversations that you know are coming, and getting really deliberate about that is definitely part of the answer. I want to change the mood a little and ask you about some recommendations. We've been doing this with all our our guests, and there have been some really fantastic recommendations on a whole raft of things. Um, And I want to start by asking you how you switch off. You obviously have this very big job. You're on a number of boards and you're part of a number of advisory groups. You've got a 12-year-old daughter. Life is very busy. How do you unwind and, and switch off? Well, definitely the walking that I talked about is a really big part of that because I put my headphones on, I go for a walk, I listen to music And that really does help me just remove myself from what feels like pressure a lot of the time. That's really important. Really enjoy catching up with friends and having some wine and watching a movie, having a laugh, all of those things that I think most of us enjoy, which has been harder to do, obviously, in this year with the pandemic. And, yeah, I mean, I guess engaging with people with a sense of humour 
is great. Finding time to still laugh, really important. And being around people who are easy to be with, no matter who you are, is just so critical. And I think at a time with this pandemic when it would be really easy to feel very cut off, you've got to work even harder to not allow that to happen. And that's part of what keeps me sane, definitely. Yeah, and I think when you have a public profile and you open yourself up to detractors, um, (laughs) whether intentionally or or otherwise, it is so important to surround yourself with people who, who love you and understand you and nourish you. Yes. I mean, sadly, both of my parents died in the last five years, you know, in a quick succession, actually, and I definitely miss them because going home to mum and dad's and having my favourite meal cooked for me and, you know, your parents who are always on your side no matter what, the loss of that I still feel. And so you have to work out how to replace that. And, you know, fortunately, I've got wonderful friends and colleagues um, in my life that uh, help that as well as my family that I'm bringing up myself. So, but I I do feel like there's still lots of days where I just wish I could ring my mum. Oh, I can hear that in your voice. They would be immensely proud (laughs) of you. I'm sure they were proud of you. Yeah, they were. They were proud. I think um, they died before I started working at the AFL and I think that's something my dad would have been extraordinarily excited about in particular. But um, I think, you know, those memories are are today still an important model for me about, you know, um, what I hope I can try and create for other people around me as well as me needing that myself. That reciprocity is really important. When you're walking, do you ever throw the headphones on and listen to a podcast. Is there any podcast that you've been subscribing to and and would recommend? I definitely do listen to The Outer Sanctum, uh, which is a group of women who run a podcast about Aussie rules football. And, uh, you know, I definitely listen to that regularly. And I just kind of mix it up. People recommend different podcasts to me, so I'll listen to those. I don't follow them as closely as I should. I watch Insiders every week. I watch Offsiders every week and I I make sure that I I do that. So, yeah, I do listen to podcasts but not as often probably as I would like to. You say you love a laugh. I'll be listening to this one. You'll be listening to this one. Of course you will be. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You say you love a laugh and I'm just wondering if there's a a favourite movie or comedy that you particularly enjoy. One that I know will make me laugh every time I watch it is Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> that always makes me laugh. Kath and Kim makes me laugh. Yes. <laughs> um, black Comedy makes me laugh. I watched Kenny again recently um, for the first time in a long time. That made me laugh. I love The Castle. Aussie comedy is, um, I mean, it just stands the test of time, doesn't it? It's priceless. It's absolutely priceless. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a huge fan of Australian film. COVID has ruled out travelling internationally for a while. For those planning Mm. a trip to Adelaide at some stage, what are your recommendations? Where do we come and eat? What are your local tips on, on places we need to see in Adelaide? Well, look, I think the wine regions are great. So, you know, I live out in the sort of direction of the Brossa Valley, but McLaren Vale is also very beautiful. There's a great restaurant in the middle of the city called Peel Street. Very good friends of mine have a son who's a chef there. So I'd really recommend a visit to Peel Street. Really gorgeous, 
food. I also like the Greek because I'm very fond of Greek food in Halifax Street. I think we've got a fabulous art gallery to visit and beautiful gardens, botanic gardens are beautiful and we've got some lovely gardens in Mount Lofty as well. So, yeah, I think there's plenty to see in Adelaide. There's great restaurants in Adelaide, beautiful wines. And, yeah, I hope that I get to some of those places myself in the next few months. Those markets right in the middle of the city, I think, are just world class. Oh, yeah, central markets. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend um, not leaving there unless you've gone to La Chia's for a coffee and take away. They've got a little shop uh, next to their, their cafe where you can buy the amazing sauces and food products that you can take away home. They just make the most beautiful Italian food and great coffee. So definitely uh, check out La Chia's if you're getting to the central markets. They are brilliant tips. And let's not also forget that uh, South Australians are some of the friendliest, kindest people I've come across. So I'm a huge oh. fan of South Australia. Oh, good to know. I want to finish by asking you, Tanya, when you're at your happiest? I would say that Friday night's my happiest night of the week because it's the one night that unless I have to work, I don't. I give myself Friday nights off. A great Friday night for me is um, some really good takeaway, a great glass of wine, football, a really comfortable pillow on the couch and a blanket watching the footy or, (laughs) you know, playing pool while friends are over watching the footy. And if I'm not at home doing that, being with people I care about doing that in another part of the country is also very good. So that's definitely one of my happiest times. The other time I'm really happy, Georgie, is if I don't have to set an alarm for the morning. So if I have a day where the alarm does not have to be set, that makes me very happy. I love a long, slow, late breakfast. (laughs) Well, that all ticks a lot of boxes in my view. Tanya Hosh, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you today. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and is produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you do not miss an episode and we would absolutely love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now.